Welcome to the podcast of the United Church of Bogota. We are a Bible-based church ministering to the English-speaking community in Bogota, Colombia. We invite you to join our diverse fellowship as we encounter God in worship and experience the impact of His grace on every part of our lives and in our world. To learn more, please visit our website at ucbogota.org. Thank you, Andrew. You guys are going to be experts in the book of Exodus if you go to these restoration groups and they're coming on Sunday morning. So um, you've noticed we've been tinkering a little bit with the furniture up here, trying to find uh, something that will work uh, well. And uh, I'll say that I feel very far over this way. And so we recognize that. We're looking for something that's going to be about right here. Right, So we'll be a little bit closer to you guys, but give us some time while we tinker and figure it out. This morning, we get to return back to the, our series through the book of Exodus, looking at the life of Moses. And uh, so before we jump into our passage this morning, I want to take a couple minutes just to reorient ourselves and figure out where we are in the story. Remember, Moses was born into a Hebrew family at a time when the king of Egypt had commanded that all Hebrew baby boys be killed because he didn't, uh, he didn't, he wanted to exterminate the Hebrew people. But not only did God preserve Moses' life through his mother placing him in the uh, basket in the Nile River, uh, he put, gave him a place in Pharaoh's own household. And so the very Pharaoh that was trying to kill Moses ended up being the one whose resources were used to raise up Moses, who would ultimately deliver Israel out of Egypt. Moses, of course, realizes as an older man that he, is, that he is actually one of the Hebrews, one of the Hebrews' slaves. And so he commits murder and has to flee Egypt because the king, again, wanted to kill him. And he fled to the land of Midian, which was a good ways away from Egypt. And he spent about 40 years there. He got married. He had children. But then one day as he's shepherding his sheep outside the, in the wilderness, the Lord speaks to him out of the burning bush, calls him back and says, I've got a job for you. I've got, uh, it's time to go back to Egypt to deliver my people out of slavery. And when we left Moses and Aaron last time, his brother, uh, God was in the midst of uh, judging the nation of Egypt with the 10 plagues that he sent uh, to judge them and to deliver people, his people out of it. But the last plague we didn't talk about the last plague, we, God threatens the last plague, and he says, Egypt, this is the last one. Tonight, as I move through the land, I'm going to kill every firstborn in the land, man, beast, everything. And under the shadow of that threat, God does something unexpected for his people. He tells them to sit down for a meal. Why would God do that? Why would he have them sit down for a meal when this, the angel of death is on his way through the land? Well, that's the question I want us to ask this morning as we return to our text and look at the institution of the Passover. So I invite you to stand, please, as we read from Exodus chapter 12. We'll skip around a little bit. If you're following along in your Bible, we'll begin in verse 1, read down to verse 13, and then we'll pick up again in verse 21. This is God's word. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. 
Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs, they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord." The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin." None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord your God will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service." And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshiped. Then the people of Israel went and did so. As the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. Amen. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father, we pray that you would enlighten our minds and our hearts to understand this word that feels strange, feels far away, feels very foreign to us, but we pray that you would illumine Christ in it and that we would be able to know him and follow him all the days of our lives, for it's in his name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Let me ask you a question. What do you think when you hear the word ritual. My guess is that when many of us hear that word, we have a somewhat negative reaction to it. Uh, We associate rituals with dead or empty religion, with people going through the motions without any sort of heart involvement in what they're doing. We think about it as sort of the height of inauthenticity, something that we do like as a show to mask a rotten interior. Some of you may even associate rituals with the things that you do to get God to do something for you. In other words, the the words that you say, the prayers that you pray, the things that you do, God will have to some sort of, somehow magically bless me if I do X, Y, and Z. 
Some of you may come from backgrounds where uh, ritual was everything. And uh, the rituals were what were impressed upon you as the, the, the sum and substance of what it may, means to be a Christian. And there are Catholic and there are Protestant versions of that. Whether it's spiritual disciplines or praying the rosary, the, the, those rituals were, were maybe impressed upon you. You thought, well, is this what it's all about? Is following these rituals, these rites? Well, in some ways, those negative reactions to the idea of rituals are right and good and biblical. Uh, the Old Testament is full of warnings to God's people who took the things that God had commanded, the sacrifices, the feasts, and all the things we read about in the Old Testament, and they did them without any sort of heart involvement. They just went through the motions, and God said, that's not what these are about. I don't want your sacrifices if you're going to sacrifice without love to God or thankfulness in your hearts. Um, the history of Christian ch- the, the Christian church as well is full of times and, pu- and traditions that, uh, uh, that built up a series of rituals and rites that actually obscured and hid the real heart of the gospel. And so this is a real danger for us. We, uh, Savannah mentioned earlier that many Protestant churches around the world celebrate Reformation Day today. And during the Reformation, men like Luther and Calvin and Beza and others uh, really called the church back to the heart of the Christian faith and called the church away from the superstitious and magical thinking that had built up over the centuries in the Roman church. But I wonder if sometimes in our reaction against empty rituals, if we haven't thrown the baby out with the bathwater. Do you have that expression here in Columbia? I'm not sure if you do, but if you do, come and tell me afterwards. But what it means is, in our reaction against empty rituals, have we lost something of, what God, of how God has designed to make Christ a part of who we are, to form us into the people that he wants us to be? Have we lost something important about that? And so this morning, what I want us to do is I want us to look at the ritual of the Passover, the first ritual that God gave to his people. And I want us to ask what we can learn about the way God intends to give Jesus to us, the way God intends to give Jesus to us and to work him into our lives. And I want to ask three questions. First, what is a ritual? What is it? Secondly, what do rituals do to us? And finally, what impact should that have on our lives today? Now, 4,000 years after this event was first instituted. So that's where we're headed this morning. First, uh, what is a ritual? Let's look at our text. Uh, Moses uses two different words to refer to this event that God describes for him. In verse 24, uh, he uses a word that the ESV translates as rite, R-I-T-E. That's a very common word in, uh, in the Old Testament. It's used over 2,000 times. But then in verse 25, he uses a different word, uh, one that he translates here as service. Service. Uh, that, word, that same word is translated in Romans 12 as worship. And so what God's saying is that this ritual that he has told Israel to go to, this is not a normal meal. That He's not just saying, hey, we're going to have lamb for dinner tonight, so here you go. This is, a, this is a, a rite, a worship service that he is building into the life of his people. So, but the first thing I want you to notice is that this, is, this ritual is God-ordained. It's God-ordained. What I mean by that is that Israel didn't think, okay, well, the angel of death is coming through. What should we do to commemorate this event? 
I got a, we have a great idea. Let's get a lamb, let's slaughter, let's put door on the, the blood on the doorposts. No, this is something that God designed, that God described, that God commanded, and he commanded it down to the very details. And that direction is important because when we think about ritual in our own lives, we, like I said, the history of the Christian church is full of traditions that have invented rituals, that have said, hey, this might be a good idea, let's try this, or let's try this. But that's not the direction that biblical rituals run. God says, this is what I want you to do. This is how you should conduct this meal. The direction is from God to us, and we receive it. It's God ordains. The second thing I want you to see is that rituals are meant to be repeated. Did you catch that? In verse 2, he tells them to observe the Passover every year in the same month on the same days. On the 10th day, they were to select the lamb. On the 14th day, they were to kill the lamb. If you read on, it's on the 21st day, they hold a worship service. And then in verse 24, he says, you shall observe this rite uh, as a statute for you and for your sons forever. Even after they entered the land, they were to observe the Passover. Even long after the first generation that actually came out of Egypt had died away. So imagine that. You're a thousand years later, your family is celebrating the Passover, dressing a particular way and eating a particular meal. Even though you never went through that experience, it's meant to be repeated to teach something to you about your past and about God. So it's rituals are God-ordained and they're repeated. The third thing is that rituals are, are by nature physical. They're physical. God could have easily just said, Israel, listen, I'm passing through the land tonight and I'm going to kill all the firstborn sons. Trust me in your hearts and I will pass over your house. Trust me in your hearts. Believe in me and I will pass over your house. But he didn't. He gives them this very physical and tangible uh, right to go through as a way to drive home what his word had already said. Think about all the senses that were involved in this meal. They had to use their eyes to examine the goat, to, to, to examine the lamb, to brush, brush back its fur, to make sure that it had no blemishes on it. Their ears, imagine the sound of every household at the same time at twilight slaughtering a lamb in their house. The shriek that would have shot through the air. The crackling of the fire as the, as the lamb roasted on the spit and filled the house with the smell of lamb. They, used, they saw their eyes as they took the hyssop branch and painted blood on their doorposts and on the lintels of their house. God commanded them to wear something in particular. He said, look, this, you need to wear your belt, you need to put your shoes on, and you need to eat with your staff in your hand. This would be like us eating a meal with our heavy overcoats on, your scarf on, and your gloves on, and your suitcases packed sitting next to your, sitting next to your table. It would have felt weird. Not only that, it, why is he doing that? He's, he's telling them that they, are, they, they, they need to be, uh, feel like they are in a hurry. Did you hear that he said you need to eat this with unleavened bread? Why is that? Well, leaven actually takes time to work its way through the dough. And so if you're going to make a leavened loaf, it takes a lot of time. But the Lord's saying, look, you guys are on your way out. And so you need to eat bread that you can make quickly, that you don't have to wait for. Because I am coming to deliver you out. You are a people that do not belong here anymore. You're on your way out. 
be in a hurry. Did you notice that also they had to eat the whole thing? They had to eat the whole lamb in haste, he says. You got to eat it in a hurry. Don't, don't put any in Tupperware and put it in the fridge for tomorrow because there's not going to be any tomorrow. You guys are out of here. And so this is a meal that is very physical, involves all of their senses, and is meant to drive home a point. And that's the last thing I want us to see about rituals, is that rituals point beyond themselves to deeper truths, to deeper realities. This rite was designed to communicate something important about them and something important about God. It was designed to communicate to them that their sin deserved death. God didn't just tell Israel, hey, I'm going to take care of the Egyptians. You guys don't worry about it. No, he says, look, you all deserve death. You all deserve to have someone die in your household as a result of your sin. The Egyptians, it will be on them. But for you, the lamb needs to die in your place. The lamb needs to be your substitute. And so as they slaughtered the lamb, year after year after year, they were slaughtering it, understanding that it was taking their place in God's judgment. That God was judging the lamb instead of them. And so these rituals, these physical rites that God built into the life and, and rhythms of his community were designed to point beyond themselves to something deeper. And the thing is, friends, we all have rituals like this in our lives. We all have rituals like this in our lives. We have repeated routines that communicate both to our own hearts and minds and to the world around us as they look at us something about what we value and about what's important to us and training us to be a particular kind of person. Basketball players have a, have a ritual, don't they, at the free throw line. They bounce the ball a particular number of times. They do it every time. That tells their body, it's time to shoot a free throw. Golfers do it uh, as they, they do the same thing right before they hit every shot to tell their body, it's time, time to hit a golf shot. And even if, you're not a, even if you're not a sports person, you have rituals too. Maybe you have a drink at a particular time of day, a coffee in the afternoon, a glass of wine at night. Maybe you grab your phone first thing in the morning and set it down last thing at night. You have a regular Friday gathering with friends every week. You get to work and you have a particular routine that you go through. You open your computer, you check email, you get a cup of, cup of coffee. Whatever it is, you've got routines and rhythms and rituals in your life. You may not recognize them as rituals. You may call them something different. You may call them habits or, whatever, or, or routines, but you've got them. Regular, repeated things that, uh, that are doing something to you. But, but what are they doing to you? What are they? What do rituals do? That's the next question I want us to ask. If that's what they are, these repeated physical things that we do, what do they do to us? In short, rituals change us. They change us. How do you, when you think about how you change, my guess is that most of us think about how we change. This is the way that I've thought about how I change a, a, a lot in the past is I think something or I feel something in my heart and then I do something with my body. That change works from the inside out. But that's not always the case. Change can work the other way around, that often the things that we do with our body affect the way that we think and affect the way that we feel. The way that we act, the way that we, the, what we do with our bodies shape 
who we are and the way we feel. There's a number of ways we see that in the Passover. The Passover, first of all, identified the people of Israel as a particular kind of people. It set them apart as a distinct group. And so when they put on their belts, they put on their shoes, they, they picked up their staff, they were physically identified as people who did not belong in Egypt. So it showed them by their very actions that they don't belong in the places where they live. They may have felt like they belong there. They've been there 400 years, been there a long time, longer than the existence of, 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 of many countries in our, in our world today. But the, their clothes set them apart as someone else, belonging to a different type of people. But the other thing that it did, the other way that it changed it, them is that it provoked questions in the next generation. Did you notice that in verse 26, the Lord says, And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? Then he tells them what to say. You parents know that your kids are always watching you, right? And unfortunately, they watch what you do, not what you say. Sometimes I wish it was the other way around. Do what I say, not as I do. But they watch what you do. And kids love rituals, don't they? I remember when our kids were young and I was uh, reading to, to Liam, our oldest, there was one book that we had that uh, every time on a particular page, I would stop right before the word ball, which was his first word. And whenever I stopped, he would fill in the blank and say the word ball. What do you think happened the first time that I read through the story and I didn't stop at the word ball? No, that's not the way it goes. <laughs> You've got to do it this way because this is the way we do it. And friends, the, your kids and your neighbors and your coworkers are watching you. They watch. They, they, they don't watch. They don't necessarily always listen to what you say. They watch what you do with your body, what you do with your time, what you, where, where, you, where you go and what, how you spend and where, where you locate yourself. They are watching that. And so, is it any surprise that the Lord has built this ritual into the life of his people so that the next generation would say, Mom, Dad, why do you do that? So it provokes this question in them. So it identified them and it provoked questions, but the main purpose of the Passover was to prepare the people of Israel. It was to prepare them. It was to prepare the people of Israel for what God was going to do in the future. Remember in the book of John, John the Baptist is on the scene and he's baptizing people outside the city of Jerusalem and it says that all the Jews are coming out to him and being baptized by him in the Jordan River. And one day, John, in the middle of his routine baptizing people, he looks up on the horizon and he sees Jesus walking towards him. And when he recognizes that it's Jesus, what does he say? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Why did John say that? Why did he think that he could declare that there's the Lamb of God and, no, and have anybody know what he's talking about? The reason why he could say the Lamb of God is because these people, everyone around him, had been for thousands of years eating the same meal year after year after year. And every year when they sacrificed that lamb and they heard it shriek and they ate it again, they realized, I'm going to have to do this again the next year. And then I'm going to have to do it again the next year. And then the year after that, why, uh, my lamb clearly doesn't do the, the job. I need a lamb that can really take away my sins. 
I need a lamb that only God can provide. And so when John declares, there, there he is. The lamb of God is here. And then when he was sacrificed on the cross, people understood, that's God's lamb. That's the blood from God's lamb that can truly wash me clean from my sins. This meal was designed to prepare them for Jesus. Friends, the rituals in our lives that we observe, they do the same thing to us. They they are changing you, whether you realize it or not. They identify us as a particular kind of people. They provoke questions from our kids, from our neighbors, our friends, to ask us, why do you do that? And they shape us. They are shaping you into into a particular kind of person. Um, Earlier this year, Facebook or Meta uh, circulated some internal documents in which they acknowledged something that we all knew to be the case, and that was the impact that Instagram was having particularly on young girls. This is not surprising to any of you, no doubt, but the hours-long ritual of flipping through perfect picture after perfect picture were causing these girls to hate themselves because their life didn't measure up to what their ritual had trained them to want. The rituals like that, given the hours and hours and hours that are spent on them, are very powerful in shaping who you are, the way you think about yourself, what you desire, what you aim for in your life. Maybe it's not social media, but you have rituals in your life that are shaping you, perhaps even rituals that are shaping you into someone you don't want to be. Uh, is your news consumption making you a fearful and worry, worrisome person? Is your rappy ritual making you impatient? I ordered this 15 minutes ago. Where is it? Is your shopping ritual making you materialistic? Do you grab your phone every time there's a dull or quiet moment in your life just to fill it with entertainment or to be stimulated or to be, to be affirmed in some way? Just to fill in the noise, fill in the emptiness in your life? Friends, those rituals are shaping you whether you realize it or not. And so identify them, be aware of them, and recognize them for what they are. So finally, what does this mean for us? What should we do in response to this? Well, it doesn't mean that we should start celebrating the Passover. So don't go, don't go, you can get lamb this afternoon across the street at Lorenzo's, but we don't celebrate the Passover. With the coming of Christ... Uh, the ceremonial aspects of God's law, including the feasts and, and the ceremonial laws, have expired. They've passed away. They were designed to prepare people for Christ, and now that Christ has come, they've passed away. But in their place, God has left new and simpler rituals that he has designed to shape us into the people that he has redeemed us to be. And those rituals center around his word, around the sacraments of the Lord's Supper and baptism, and around prayer And we don't have time to unpack all of those this morning, but I want you to notice how all three of those channels, the word, the sacraments, and prayer are concentrated in this event, 
this ritual, this rite that we do every Sunday morning. Uh, what we do here on Sunday morning isn't just a Bible study. It's not just a convenient time for all of us to come together and be taught. It's more than that. And that's why every Sunday we follow a similar pattern in our service that we believe reflects the truth of the gospel. We confess together. We hear God's word together. We involve our entire bodies. We stand. We sit. We lift our hands. We bow our heads. We listen. We sing. And like the Passover, God engages all of our senses as we do so, as we encounter him. That's one reason some of you have asked, like, what's that thing doing in the back of the sanctuary when I walk in? I'm like, trip over this, this thing as I walk in. Well, that, that's there to remind you that when you come into this room, that you see those wa- the water inside there, that when you come into this room, the most important thing about you is not the color of your skin or the language you speak or what you do for a living or how old you are, but the most important thing about who you are in this room is that you've been washed with the waters of baptism that point you to the blood of Christ. And so just as the people inside their homes could look at the blood on the doorpost and say, God is going to see the, door, the blood on the doorpost and pass over this house, he can, you can know that he will pass over you because you have been washed with the blood of Jesus. You don't need to touch it or splash it on yourself. You've already been baptized. You don't need to be baptized again. It's there to remind you of who you are as you come in this room. We celebrate the Lord's Supper every week as a, as a, because God has promised to meet us in it to, to, when we, so that when we eat and when we drink, we declare to ourselves and to the world around us that Christ is no good if he remains outside of us, but that we need Christ inside of us, that we need to eat and drink him more than we need to eat and drink even physical food. It's a reminder that we need him inside of us, inside of our souls. And most importantly, we hear his word here on Sundays. We hear his words of judgment and words of pardon, his words of uh, instruction and comfort, his law and his gospel. His word in this place ought to be the most profound shaping ritual in your life. And so my challenge to you this morning, friends, is to fill your day with the rituals of his word. To fill your day with the rituals of his word. May God's words be the first words that you hear when you open your eyes. May they be the last words that you hear before you close them again at night. Develop the grace-empowered habits of his grace, of communing with God. And you will find, friends, that those habits, those rituals, those disciplines, whatever you want to call them, will not be the things that you do to get God's attention, to make him bless you, but they will be the channels through which God has promised to give himself to you and through which he's promised to bless you. Let them shape your life. Let them structure your time and your days So that those who watch, when they ask you, what do you mean by this service? You can say, this is a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Because the Lord passed me over. Because he's washed me with the blood of the Lamb. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Christ, our Passover Lamb who has been sacrificed for us. 
We thank you for passing over us in your judgment that we might have peace with you through our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that we too are a people on the move, not at home here in this world, but quickly moving forward to the world to come. We pray that you would shape us into the people you want us to be. Change our desires. Renew our wills. Do not allow us to be conformed to this world, but transform us through the renewal of our minds, through the power of your holy word. We ask all this in the name of Christ, the Lamb of God. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to support the ministry of UCB, please visit our website at ucbogota.org.